Good evening. Welcome to the Borgo Pass Horror Podcast. Enter freely and of your own will. In this episode, you may find many strange things, for the films to be discussed are old, and they have many memories. So, be there. Be there. Welcome everyone to part two of our special Halloween episode. We're talking about Bride of Frankenstein with special guest Livio Marino and celebrated horror author Greg Mank. So one of my, so we'll, we'll get back on the movie here a bit. So Monster, as we discussed, taken um, taken prisoner and literally he's in this, you know, dank um, prison, I don't call it a, I guess this giant cell where they lock him down on this um, stale chair and just so, uh, wonderful. I love this, just this going back and seeing stills of this scene. Um, it doesn't last too, too long. They, unfortunately, they don't, the, the contraption they put the monster in, man, it looks like it would hold anybody for, you know, months and months. And the, you know, the monster doesn't stay locked down for too long, but just the contraption they have around his, his arms and they lock down his neck and head. Um, yeah. Just a beautiful piece of engineering here. It's, it's one of those things they could have just chained him to a wall, but instead it's, it's this throne that's on top of a set of stairs that, that they can shoot from underneath. And yeah, and, and all these elaborate, you know, the, the bar that goes across his skull and stuff. It, it looks like a, some kind of medieval torture chair that they've, that, that the town's repurposed, I guess. For Yeah. Yeah. I want to say like, like, get a big chair. I want to say like the last guy that they had had to use that chair for. Right. <laughs> um, but it goes to my thing was like, like at some point, like, I mean, in this film, we're still early on in the Frankenstein stuff, but, but you see it all through, uh, you know, makes Wolfman, Ghost, Son, House, uh, you know. Um, at some point, you just got to go like, why Why even try to tie the monster up? Because, you know, I mean, inevitably, he's going to he's gonna bust out of it. Like, it's 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 like the gangsters never got the word to stop trying to shoot Superman. Like, at some point, just you think word would spread, right? And just like, just, just stop. Just don't even bother. It's not going to work. And that's one thing, and, and we're going to fast forward in, through movies here, but like, say, Ghost of Frankenstein, yeah. where they literally have, you know, a couple of handcuffs on it, and he's sitting in a courtroom, in like mm-hmm. the plaintiff's box, yeah. And then you look at you, you think back to a scene like this. <laughs> <laughs> Who thought this was a good idea? Right, yeah. right. One, well. one of my uh, favorite parts uh, of this is E.E. E. Clive, who who is so perfect in this role and gives such a uh, politician response. You know, the monster is is obviously not contained and breaks loose, and he's out there telling everybody, yeah. "No danger at all, totally harmless." <laughs> well, in the background, you're like, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so good like nothing more to see here tush tush so long story short monster escapes and he's back on uh i guess you know it gets out of the jail cell and you know scares the townspeople and i can't swear this is the first time we saw dwight fry's cowl but he is he's standing beside um the burgomaster and you had mentioned earlier greg there's this whole secondary um business with cowl is kind of being you know the murder and create or you know doing killings on um, Pretorius's behalf. Can you get into this and maybe reasons why, or maybe, maybe a little bit more detail regarding um, kind of Kyle's story here that ultimately didn't make it into the final cut here? Yeah, there were actually two different characters in the script. Uh, there was Carl, who was 
referred to in the throughout the script as the, the village idiot. All right. And, uh, uh, you know, rather unkindly. And um, there was uh, a character that they once again called Fritz, who was one of Dr. Frankenstein's or got one of Henry Frankenstein's, I should say, uh, assistants in the uh, in the climactic scene. And what Whale did, because he was such a, an admirer, such a fan of Fry, was that he combined the two roles together. All right. Basically. And then I guess I don't like with the time problems, he had to end up cutting it down. But what happened was that Carl, uh, as this uh, unfortunately named village idiot, uh, when the monster was in the town escaping and rampaging and causing all kinds of consternation, uh, he, Carl, took advantage of this and went around and killed his uncle and aunt. Right. And um, yeah. And so and stole and stole their money. And um, so. Uh, you know, there was this whole film subplot. There's stools of it there, uh, of of, uh, of this happening. It was a, you know, very, very sinister little subplot there of this this this, yeah. this, this rotten guy but taking he's taking. He's using like the monster as cover to to yes yes. I think he's never going to blame it on a monster. That that scene always it confuses me a little bit because because the you know the monster is not. He's he's reactive. He's not, and, and pretty consistently throughout most of these things, unless unless Igor is ordering him to do some things, he normally he, he reacts out of defense. The husband and wife murder is one thing. the The little Frida girl murder has yeah. always disturbed me, and 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 it still bothers me. It's so out of the logical, you know, through story of of the monster that it that it just I don't I just don't get it, and I also don't get how that stayed in the film of all things too. It's so wild, uh, Greg. Do you, yeah. Yeah. Talk to us about that. Help us out. Yeah. In the cutting, of course, it, it becomes all rather confusing uh, in, in what was the release print. But um, I, I it, it's possible that, you know, the monster killed Frida, but I don't think so. I think, again, that Carl did it uh, and uh, for no good purpose, other than that, he's really an evil, horrible person. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that was another thing that, of course, they ran into trouble with the censors about was the fact that, uh, uh, you know, that there is this scene in which the little communion girls come out and see the dead little girl in the street, which, of course, is terribly shocking for everybody to yeah. see. And then there's an actual still, though, from the movie in which the mother is holding Frida and Frida's just covered with blood. I mean, yeah. it's a really disturbing wow. still. Um, and and the, the little girls are all gathered around her. All right. And they're all, you know, it's, it's, it's this really, really gruesome and, and, and unpleasant scene. Uh, with this girl, you know, kind of dangling dead in her mother's arms, and uh, again, this was this was one of, this was one of the scenes that Whale did agree to take out. Uh, one of two, he took out the the breast shots, if you will, in the first scene with, of Elsa Lanchester, and he took out the close shot of Bloody Frida in her mother's arms uh, during this village riot that took place. Um, he, he left in the shot of her, you know, dead in the street, but he took out the closer shot of in her mother's arms. And so I think that uh, if the film were complete, we'd have more of a clue to the fact that this was actually the work of Carl and not the monster. Because you say this is completely out of character for the monster to have done this. Yeah. Um, you know, there was no reason for him to attack a little girl. And the way he's played throughout the film, you know, you certainly don't see any motivation there for him to want to kill a child. And right. after it happened with little Maria, you figured if he saw a little girl, he'd run to the other side of the street because he was so haunted by what had happened with that, that he certainly wouldn't want to hurt another little girl. So um, so that was kind of a mystery in the film. But I think that if, if the film is ever miraculously enough found and pieced together and everything that was cut out is put back in, I think the, the, the culprit there is going to be Carl. 
uh, who was that responsible. That makes me so much happier, actually. You have no idea, Greg. That actually makes me, that's a heartbreaking scene for me because I, I want to root for the, the monster and that one thing makes it very difficult. So yeah. thank yeah. you. That's great. Well, sure, you this, I think the inference is definitely there that this was Carl's work, not the monster's. Well, especially the scene right before that where he's helping... I'm just going to call a little Bo Peep, the little the girl with the with the sheep and the lambs. Yeah. Yes, when she, when yes. she fell and her yeah. the monster's first instinct was to jump in and help her and be tender yeah. to her. Exactly. So it had been totally out of character for him to kill a little child like that. Uh, so so yes. Yeah, so I think that was what it was. It was that was that was Dwight Fry's evil doing uh, in in that particular scene and um, with all the, the 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 cutting that went on later to shorten the tighten up the film and and the the sensor problems and so on and so forth. That uh, that all got kind of mystified. Awesome. Kind of a fun fact with that scene too. So you know, Greg, you had mentioned the communion girl. So, kind of the lead communion girl is Little Maria from the Thirty One film, looking much older, and um, you know, definitely grew a bit in the last you know four four years since the film. But if you look closely, one of the girls is uh, Little Maria. Kind of sure, cool. You know, it sure looks like her. Although having talked to her, she claims she was not in Bride of Frankenstein. And there's two different scenes where you'd swear it's her. So it's it's I think it's likely that she's simply forgot she was in it um, wow. yeah i think she may have just forgotten she was in it because it was probably like a little day's work or something like that and she might not might not have even as far as the communion girl bit she might not have even been in this been in the same scene with the monster you know i mean he might not have even been there when that scene was shot on the back lot so um but no you're right that really looks like marilyn harris and um but I remember her. I remember asking her about it, and she said, "No, I only only worked in Frankenstein. I never worked in another picture with um, with with Karloff." But um, no she worked a number of whale pictures. She worked in Showboat, and she worked in um, The Road Back. And so I think it might have just been her memory. Maybe she was mad she didn't get any hard boiled eggs. <laughs> no hard boiled eggs that day. Hard boiled eggs. I'm not going to admit to doing it. I'm just going to wipe that out of my memory. That's, That's right. right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we're, we're coming upon a, I mean, certainly one of my favorite scenes of all time. And, you know, one of the, the, the scenes I think makes this, this film so special. So the monster, <clears throat> again, kind of on the run, work, walking through the woods and here's um, music, the violin playing, of course, brings us to this, um, this incredible scene with the hermit. And I don't even know where to start here. This is such a, just a wonderful, wonderful scene. Um, gosh, Greg, do you want to take this one? This is just I agree. I, I think that the, my two favorite scenes in the uh, in the Frankenstein series would be the scene with Little Maria in, in the 1931 film and the scene with the Hermit in the 1935 film. And um, uh, for one thing, it was the last sequence that was shot uh, for Bride of Frankenstein. They actually closed down shooting for a short time so they could get O.P. Hagee to, uh, you know, available to play the Hermit. And if you watch the scene carefully, um, I mean, his makeup is flawless. Carl's makeup is flawless throughout, but uh, he never looks quite as as incredibly expressive as he does in that particular episode. Um, part of it's the lighting, of course, part of it's his performance, but also everything was just right. The makeup was just right. The lighting was just right. They just they got everything technically perfect, but his his emotion in that scene and and Heggie's emotion in that scene is just absolutely remarkable and of course the 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 thing with um with um uh you know the, the, where it builds to where where you know he, the, the hermit is crying and and uh praying and the, and the mon- you see the monster has tears running down his face and then that that crucifix glows up on the wall i mean I, I, that just is i agree that is one of my all-time favorite movie scenes of 
of all time. And um, it's just both both actors are brilliant. I don't think I think, uh, you know, and, you know, it's funny. I wonder I've thought of this last couple of times I watched the movie. I wonder if Karloff ever saw it because he didn't go to his own films if he could help it. He wasn't happy about the monster speaking in Bride of Frankenstein. So he had a real, you know, a real prejudice toward the film. And I wonder if when he finished making Bride of Frankenstein, if um, if he ever did see it, uh, you know, actually either in a theater or on television or, or yeah, at any time in the rest of his life, if he ever actually sat down, I think, I think his attitude probably was, well, if I watch it, I'll just be, you know, I'll get all fired up again about the dialogue and I'll, I'll think that Jimmy went too far here and I think I'll think this and that and the other things. So I'm just going to avoid it. And it's it's a shame to think that he might have missed himself in that magnificently played scene. Uh, to, to, to add to the, some of that sadness, Greg, I know O.P. Heggie died shortly after the filming of this and yes, absolutely didn't see this. Yes, yes, very, very quickly, very soon. And, um, you know, it, it just, it's just so beautiful. And the, again, the music, as Lydia was talking about, uh, is perfect. The, the, the lighting is perfect. The, the sounds the monster makes leading up to the, you know, in, in there are perfect. The, the way he holds his hands. And I could go on and on. Yeah, <laughs> I, could, I could go on longer than the scene last, saying how, how, what a, what a terrific scene it is. Yeah. Yeah. Livio, thing. it's a, it's a permutation on Ave Maria, isn't it? Yeah, it's Ave Maria at the end. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. yeah. been doing right. for as much imagery or, or whale turning his nose up at, at religious images throughout this. You know, with the mm-hmm. the way the monster is is treated, and you know the line about Bible stories. I think that small touch at the end where you see the crucifix, you know, glowing. You know, after the monster and the blind man has has found each other and found solace in each other is is something that's you know it's a call out to it but it's in it's in a, a very positive way you know I, I think any anyone that that's very uh christian very religious you know would see that and just be that they would understand the inference and there wouldn't be any anything negative behind it I mean, yeah i mean i mean i i i think i mean my my take on it is you know it's whale and and because because it's whale you can't pigeonhole him and you can't just say he's a provocateur um and, and while a lot of the film uh is intentionally tactically sacrilegious i, I mean w- w- absolutely um i think he's i think he's trying to say something here that that morality exists kind of beyond faith or, or organized religion or, or churches or whatever. Cause, cause what's happening here is like the monster is learning morality and, it, it, you know, from, from this gentle guy and he's, he's learning that there's no such thing as total right, total wrong. Cause there, he's having lessons about this. There's no such thing as good or bad. It, it's about the interpretation of those things. And it's about your own choice of what what constitutes right or wrong. Because he's never been taught these things um, in the first film or, you know, in this film. He's only had negative stimuli. Um, and and that's I think that's the message. It's like it's like he's he's starting to form his own moral code. And we see that play out right at the end of the film, obviously, when he decides to you know commit self-sacrifice. It'd be interesting. Um, to, and the, and you, we can talk about this and there's not going to be any right answer, but. How long was the monster with his hermit? Because he, I mean, clearly develops, you know, speech. Um, mm-hmm. And he, you know, when he, you know, ultimately gets with Pretorius, uh, ex, you know, expounds on his ability to, to to communicate. But you know, any again, there's no right or wrong answer. There's, I mean, no one's going to know. But you know, you got to wonder how long was he with the hermit for? Maybe a week, a two, couple it, of weeks. It, 
in the book, he states that this cabin, he, he hides in the shed of a cabin with right. his family. There's, there's the old blind man and stuff. And that, that's right. what this film, this version kind of references. And that goes on for a while in the book. In this version, I mean, he stays here at least long enough for, for Henry and Elizabeth to get married, right? Because the next time we see them, mm-hmm. they've actually... Right. So, so my and his wounds heal up quite a bit. So my my feeling is that it goes on a little bit before uh, John Carradine shows up and ruins it. <laughs> <laughs> that guy. <laughs> but just I mean, some of the dialogue. I mean, you know, it's just the hermit. You know, he looks at him and kind of holds his hand, or you know, so, you know, it's bad to be alone. It just it's it's so heartbreaking because clearly this hermit's been alone for so long. And we know the you know the you know, the monster. He's you know can't find a friend to save his life. So, you know, it's bad to be alone friend. Good. And then, you know, whenever, like you said, uh, Jim, you know, Carradine and the, the other hunter comes in, they've lost their way and totally, you know, it literally burns um, the life of the monster, you know, quite figuratively because, you know, the, ultimately the, the, the hermit's cabin catches on fire and the hermits rushed off and um, the monster escapes, you know, the burning hut by the, and it's, you know, he comes out and he's holding his hands again, almost like, you know, that first scene of Frankenstein, like this pleading, you know, motion yeah. with his hands. He's just saying, friend, friend. So it's, close, yeah. it's absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah. So I have a question now for, for uh, everybody, especially Greg here. So what we, what we the, the, the hunters show up and they've lost their way. And when they step inside, they act, they see the monster and they recognize him as the monster. Um, the Not carried in, the other actors has, has a line where he says, Frankenstein made him out of dead bodies, which and, and Pretorius visits Henry knowing that he created the monster. Now, now at the end of Frankenstein 31, nobody knows that Frankenstein, he, uh, he is, he's never admitted that, that the monster is his creation. The, the village just thinks he's a madman running around. And in the beginning of this film, kind of too, like like E. Clive's like, oh, he's just a madman needed, needed dealing with and stuff. So at some point, Goldstadt, the town and the area in general, um, at, as this has come out and i don't know if that's something that was even considered and and just excised from the film or if that's just we've moved on and now we have to just acknowledge that people know what what henry frankenstein did uh greg do you have any anything yeah i think probably the legend of what what henry frankenstein did grew you know so quickly and Mm -hmm. ominously and and everything that uh that uh, everybody knew it you know, it was a, it was a, everybody in that area of the, of the I, I think his friend Victor told everybody because that guy's nowhere to be found. That's right. He blasted that, that home wrecker. I think he took <laughs> off and told everybody what Henry did. That, that that's possible. And, and then he left him holding the bag there. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, I think, I think everybody, you know, the word spread quickly and, uh, you know, the notoriety was there. And of course, as soon as they saw the monster, they realized, you know, like, well, we know who that is, you know, and, and uh, I know his backstory. So uh, almost, almost a shock on the monster's face. Yeah. When the hunter says, you know, Frankenstein made him out of dead bodies and the monster just shoots him this look. Like, yeah. What? Like, holy Wow! So that's the, does the monster <laughs> yeah. know this? Is this when right. the moment the monster realizes what? I, I think it is. I, yeah. I thought that was going to be the question you were going to ask, Jim, and I was mm-hmm. going to say I think this probably puts the pieces together where the monster has seen himself in you know the reflection in the lake, and you know, obviously right. you know it doesn't feel right. And this leads I, us to the next scene in the crypt, right? right absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And we belong dead. Yeah, we all belong dead. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we, I agree that you know I, I think word just got out, and, and even. So if you go back to the original Frankenstein, of course, I just saw this last week, but when Baldwin and, and Victor and and his father and everyone come up to his laboratory um, after the monster kills Fritz and Frankenstein is just, you know, 
collapsing, you know, just a nervous wreck. He, he's very open and talks about, you know, his creation and, and he, you know, what needs to happen and, and, you know, the conversations that him and Dr. Waldman have kind of out in the open between when Neil Barron is there and Elizabeth is there, they kind of reference, you know, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to dissect him. It will be a humane death. I'll, I'll take care of it. Right. So I, I think probably from there is, is the genesis of, you know, someone tells somebody else and then, you know, suddenly the whole town knows what the origin of this monster was. As happens in small towns, right? So, right. so th- but they don't mention gold, the word Goldstadt in this film, but I mean, obviously we're expectedly, this is still Goldstadt. So it's, it's between this film and Son of Frankenstein, where the town suddenly changes name to, to Frankenstein. Yeah. Cause it's obviously Frankenstein in son of Frankenstein. Yeah. Yeah. Which is what well, it's only four years after this. Yeah. That's right. So moving on. So yeah, unfortunately he's lost the monsters lost his only friend and he is, I think maybe for the first time just really pissed and he looks <laughs> like an angry child, you know, going now back into the countryside throwing down um you know trees and just you know piss and this is where we get to the scene that you know ultimately was cut um but we see the crucifix with you know obviously christ hanging from the cross in the background so the monster goes over and this time it's a bishop i believe and you know knocks over the bishop statue which unveils a kind of an underground passage which now brings us into the crypt um livio i mean this is some of I guess we start talk, listening to some of the uh, Pretorius music and whatnot. Let's take take us into the crypt here. This is a, another really great scene. Yeah, it is, and it's a a real good example of how the the music kind of calms down a bit and is very very subtle, but also very very emotional. You you get a sense for what the monster is feeling and and, and kind of how lost he is, and you can tell that the only thing the real monster really wants to do is is to have a friend. I mean, the, the first thing he does once he he kind of goes down to you know, running away from the mob that he knows is after him. He kind of falls into his, this crypt or coffin and then sees this young girl there. And he, he kind of, you know, puts his hand over and, it, you know, you hear him say, you know, friend. Mm. Um, and then you hear, hear noises in the background and he kind of hides out and watches as you see Pretorius and um, Carl and I think Ludwig, um, which is obviously Pretorius is hired searching for for bodies um and and you know the <laughs> the great great line here you know what you think carl and ludwig are are kind of hesitant to do a lot of these ghoulish things that pretorius is putting them up to and, and he says you know pretorius says do you want me to send you to the gallows where you belong and then you know after they they kind of do the deed they're leaving and and Dwight Fry goes, what do you say? Next time we let him hang us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so but this then, is where Ludwig shows up. Okay. That, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. I hadn't caught that. And, and you know, and then this goes into the great um, scene that uh, Franz, I'm going, I'm in tune with the music here, no pun intended, but um, you know, Franz Waxman titled this track as Pretorius is by himself drunk you know, laughing at, at these bones, he called this the, the dance macabre. And, and, and it's, it's a great, uh, creepy yet also a, l- a bit whimsical music t- to, uh, kind of portray Pretorius's mood and how he's clearly so lost. I mean, his mind, he, he's so far out there that he's thoroughly enjoying himself in a crypt by himself, drinking with bones. And he had, unlike everyone else in, in the movie, he has no fear of the monster. The monster comes strolling up and he just kind of is like, oh, hello. You know, he, he's 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 perfectly at home with all the ghoulishness around him. He it's shares just, his rotisserie chicken. Everyone in this movie loves rotisserie chicken. The, yeah. the gypsy family, 
Him, everybody, everybody likes a good rotisserie chicken, except the old lady who wants salt and pepper on her. Yeah, pepper and salt, yeah. Pepper and salt. It is. It's it's a music of just madness. Yes. Um, yeah, it's it, antic. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah, it's like manic. It's just it's craziness. Greg, what do you do? You have any insights on on the scene here in the crypt? I think that uh, uh, Karloff and, and Pessinger have great chemistry, if you want to call it that. Uh, in, yeah. in here. And uh, uh, one of the things that is so marvelous is when when Kar- when Karloff first comes in and and tries to uh, approach him and make friends, and he says, you know, and he says the word friend. He, he says it in that quavering voice that has like makes friend have like five syllables. You know, he says friend. Mm-hmm. You know, like that. he's so nervous. He's so scared about making uh another friend so hopeful it'll make another friend and um you know and of course you know this just says oh, yes i hope so you know we <laughs> <laughs> kind of throws away the line at him uh but uh yeah no they um they they, they work together beautifully in this and um and uh you know it gets as uh you know it, it, as you mentioned the chicken we have the you know we have carl I'll take the big bite of chicken in there with the, with the bones crunching or whatever and, yeah <laughs> you know, which was the sort of thing that you know Karloff was again kind of reluctant to do because he t- kept worrying about you know we can't make a fool of the monster we can't make him silly we can't make him a comic you know we can't do these kind of things but you know again all through the movie he manages to do these things without looking silly it just is natural it's just you know it's the way that a that a a monster who pieced together the way he was pieced together would necessarily eat chicken. <laughs> you know, it's, he hasn't learned these things, man. And, you know, he's kind of a teenager now. I mean, he's angsty. He's, he's breaking things. He's, he's abusing alcohol. He's mad yeah. at his dad, you know, that's right. He's thinking about girls. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's right. That's exactly what he's, that's where he is at this point. Mm-hmm. Greg, the, the, I, I, for some reason, focus on the, the, the skull in this scene uh, that that's sitting on the crypt that, 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 uh, Pretorius is arranged with the bones and stuff. And I, I'm looking at it really big on my screen right now. And I'm, I'm pretty sure, I don't believe the skill set was there where they were making these photorealistic human skull props in 1935. And I'm, I'm just wondering, I, I'm pretty sure that's a real skull that they used and probably maybe not real human bones like the femurs and stuff, but that skull looks awful good. They, they, you know, they, they sometimes would, you know, the, the movies have to try to be so exact that they would actually do that. You know, they would, they would get a real body part uh, to use in a yeah. film. I, I remember. Uh, like research. something that had been donated or something, not like what, what Carl is doing. Right. Yeah. No, 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 no. Hopefully not. But uh, I remember researching the mask of Fu Manchu and going through the MGM records. And at one point, if you remember in the mask of Fu Manchu, they, uh, which you guys just covered so nicely uh, that they threw the, uh, they threw Lionel Barton's hand over the wall. And um, there's a note in the MGM archives and it says you know retake this scene go to the morgue and get a real hand that doesn't bounce when you throw it over the wall all right and uh, apparently they did apparently <laughs> although i think wow. that if you watch the movie the hand bounces anyway but i guess they figured oh what the hell you know I'm, I'm, <laughs> it turns out real hand bounces so we're okay real hands bounce too uh but uh yeah but so they were you know they had to be exact because you know the, the, the thing they always had to be careful of was that somebody would would uh, you know point and say oh that's that's so fake or that's not right or that's the wrong yes. portion or, or you know something of that nature so they had to safeguard themselves against that so you also <laughs> probably had contacts to uh, provide them a skull from a res- fairly respectable uh, yeah. provider. I, I, I can yeah, see the studio. No, 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 no. You're wrong. It's a real hand. <laughs> <laughs> so you I mentioned mean, this. You mentioned the scene, Jim. There's a really cool 
still like a, I don't call it a promo shot, but it's, it's whale, James whale and Thessinger side by side over the coffin and those bones. I don't know if you guys oh. have seen that, but yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, a great the, the, the ghoulish delight that whale would took in. in oh yeah. In this. And then he goes into, I mean, that's showboat. He does, you know, I mean, this, he wasn't a one trick pony. He, this wasn't his only thing, but, but yeah, I mean that 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 he would en- he enjoyed the 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 uh, the charnel kind of you know vibe of of, of what's happening here and then embraced it and stuff. Yeah. So some really interesting things happening down this crypt scene. So yeah, we mentioned Pretorius and the monster come this quick introduction and the monster at this point you know knows who he is, knows he was created and asks asks Thessinger asks Pretorius, you know, are you going to make a man like me and you know pats himself on the chest. And, you know, Pretoria says, well, no, a woman for you. And you'd see the gears all of a sudden start, you know, start turning in Pretorius's head that now he can use a monster as, you know, kind of a chip, a leveraging chip against Henry. So Henry's kind of been, you know, again, I don't think Pretorius is, is absolutely sold that Henry's in on this experiment. So now meeting the monster, he's kind of has his, um, you know, kind of a, something in the back, his back pocket here, which ultimately leads us up to this next scene at Castle Frankenstein. And um, before I move on, it's, it's such a great scene. I want to be sure we're not missing anything else in this in this crypt scene. Um, my, my only thing is that this is the moment where, where the monster really embraces the fact that he's he's one of the dead. That yes. He is not like the people that he sees and stuff. He's he's internalized that. And he's, he's done it very quickly. And he's, he's come to terms with that. You know, he has that famous line. He's like, I, I love dead. I hate living. Um, yeah. he's, he's on the other side of this. He's, he's playing for Team Death. Um, and... <laughs> But again, I think that's what his his basic need for companionship that he realizes he'll never be have a human companion. He needs another dead companion is what allows uh, Pretorius to, to you know, co-opt him over onto his side. And he says, like, I think you could be very persuasive or useful or, or so he has a good. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, I'd say for me and I think in some ways, Ernest Thessinger is a bit overshadowed uh, in this movie, but just how fantastic he is in, in this role and how perfectly he plays everything so like the 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 last scene of this is you know after the monster says woman friend wife and you see that the monster realizes what's happening and then you see pretorius gives this just really sly smile you know it Mm -hmm. it almost reminds me of the way the grinch you know gives that evil smile you know you see the gears turning in pretorius's head and it's it's, yeah it's karloff is so great in this movie and whale directs it so great there's there's so many great things about this movie sometimes i I wonder if uh, Ernest Thessinger gets a bit overlooked, but his performance here is is just hands down fantastic. And it's the little touches that he does with Pretorius that that really um, makes him just just creepy, but just very. It's just a wonderful wonderful performance that he that he does. I was just gonna, is Pretorius's motivation just that he wants to prove that he can he can create full size life? I mean, is that his you know, that he's he's pushing Henry to to join him? He's co-opting the mo- the monster and stuff. I mean, his his goal is just to pr- prove it. I mean, he he's sort of Henry in the first film, like saying like I'm going to show those people, and you get the feeling like uh, kind of like uh, Lugosi's Doctor Valen at the hospital we talk about in, in the Raven that the, the Pretorius was probably not the most popular guy at the university. Uh, you know, I, I feel like he was kind of a loner and ostracized. He's that, you know, lone gunman guy and stuff. And, and I guess he's doing it, but, but it's, it's a lot of effort that he's going through to put all these pieces together just to, just to say, I told you so, but uh, they, they, he's so, per- we're going to use this word again, perverse and twisted. I just, 
I don't know what his end goal is. I mean, Henry, I mean, the story of, you know, Victor slash Henry Frankenstein, and they don't really, it's not told really in the universal tale, is that he's lost a mother. So he's always had this battle against, you know, God and, and heaven and, you know, life and death and, and everything. And to me, Henry never came off Henry, you know, Frankenstein 31 is this like perverse, twisted guy. Like He doesn't he want just, power. Right. No, he wasn't looking for power. He just... Pretorius wants to, the, the monster and the bride to breed and, and release an entire race of monsters. I think, I mean, Pretorius's goal is, I mean, he's sort of a bond villain. He kind of wants to destroy the world a little bit in, in some right. way, at least. And, and I think it's his getting revenge for probably the people that have, he feels have mistreated us and stuff. He's, he's diabolical. As opposed to Henry, who's just misguided and maybe weak-willed. Yeah, and like perverse, you know, I, I get the impression too. And, and I think he, Pretorius alludes to this when he's first talking to Henry that, you know, um, he, he wants he wants to create a woman, but I think he wants them to mate, you know, because I mean, he oh, yeah. even, he, he mentions that, you know, um, in that first scene between the two, him and Pretorius and Dr. Frankenstein, that, you know, with your creation still at large in the countryside, you know, that, that seems to be, he goes, oh, okay, he's out there. We can create the woman. And and he kind of mentions that to the monster as well. You know, he wants to they'll be, they'll be, fruitful, wants, be fruitful and multiply. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah. Yep. So, he wants he wants them to breed. Yeah. The whole world of monsters is what he wants and stuff. Yeah. So that'll show him. Anyway. Greg, I mean, we've been talking a lot about Fessinger. So before we I could talk about him all night. So how much and he's Ernest has a big role in this film. How much was um, Colin Clive's poor health, the declining health, a factor in giving um, Fessinger maybe some more screen time, if any. Um, I, I don't think it was. I think that Whale and um, and uh, the the new screenwriter William Hurlbut, uh, just when they came up with this idea of having this sort of you know uh, satanic god, if you will, with with Fessinger, with you know this 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 satanic character who wants to play God. Uh, and create his own breed and his own people and, and his own race um, that they just re- really fell in love with the idea. And also that we all thought, you know, geez, what a wonderful part for, for Thesiger. Um, And so um, I think that that was, that was it. I don't think it was so much that, um, that they, that uh, Clive at this point was ill, although he was, I think it was primarily just that, you know, they thought that, that Thesiger would really, you know, would, would be very, very striking, which he certainly was. Um, but I think that's what I think that's what they were after. I think they wanted they, they wanted somebody who was satanic. They wanted somebody who was all the things that, that these gentlemen have mentioned tonight. You know, that, that someone that had this this god complex. Somebody who wanted to create his own race of people. Uh, somebody who wanted to shock the hell out of the world. You know, somebody who wanted to 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 you know release the, these, this this monstrous couple, and from there, who knows where they could go, and you know, just scare the living daylights out of everybody. With uh, with what when they realized what was happening here that you know that there was a you know a, a merciful God who you know in religion who creates created the human race and now we've got you know on the other side we've got this Luciferian uh, character who's scary and perverted and and spooky and and all these things and suggestive and uh, that he wants to now create his own race and uh, you know the war's on. You know, the holy war is starting, uh, you know, because he's going to unleash them and, and that uh, the world's never going to be the same again. It's, it's so different from in the book. The monster meets up with with um, uh, and Victor Frankenstein after after he's been on a bit of a rampage and he strikes a deal with with Victor. Right. That he says, if you build me a bride, I'll I'll take her and we will go far away, away from where any human is 
and we'll just live out our lives, the natural course of our lives that way. I mean, that that's that, you know, so he's the instigator of the, the whole bride scheme uh, in the in the book. And this is such a flip of that. And it's an interesting idea that, that it's the human being that wants a, a race of monsters, not the monster. So we've got a next scene. We're back at uh, Castle Frankenstein. And for the first time, we've got a kind of a face to face showdown between the monster and creator Henry. So Pretorius goes back to the castle to kind of give Henry um, not quite the ultimatum, but say, you know, hey, all my, my work is done here. So it's kind of a two-parter. Pretorius's work is done on you know creating the creation of this woman. Now it's Henry's turn, you know, to get working on the brain and, and whatnot. And Henry says, um, turns him down flat, so that I'm, I'm done with this madness, you know, leave me alone. And then, um, you know, kind of pulls, Pretorius pulls uh, the monster theoretically out of his back pocket, opens up the door. And it's the monster, great scene in the doorway, you know, towering and, you know, walks in. And Henry immediately, you know, jumps up from the chair, scared out of his wits. And just a wonderful, you know, call back to Frankenstein 31, where the monster, you know, puts his hands out and just says, you know, sit down. Yeah. <laughs> you know, from 31, just a wonderful scene. Of course, Henry is, you know, very dutiful. And um, yeah, if you got one, you guys want to take kind of the the, the the dialogue between these two is really fantastic. Well, my only thing is that it's we're, we're almost we're 52 minutes. We're an hour into the film and before Henry and the monster reunite. It's just an interesting I mean, they they whale extends it this long uh, and the screen race is this long. And and you you earn this moment now. You're like, oh, OK, reunited. OK. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good point. It's, it's it's interesting that in some of those earlier scripts we talked about uh, previously that uh, the, the films were much more of a duet, if you will, between Henry Frankenstein and the monster, you know, that they were almost on, a, on an even co-starring level and that they were in it you know, throughout the film and that you were watching the two. And in fact, when when uh, Universal first talked in summer 1933 about that, the fact that they would make the return of Frankenstein and all that, they were very quick to mention you know, that the film will also include Cullen Clive uh, so that they would have, so that you could picture you know, the monster and the monster maker. And then of course, that's one of the things that's different in Bride of Frankenstein is that the monster maker uh, in a sense of Cullen Clive uh, becomes um, in a sense, uh, the romantic hero, uh, a very tormented uh, romantic hero, uh, until you know he gets all consumed again in the end in the tower what he's doing and then we see the the old Henry Frankenstein back again uh, but um, yeah I think that uh, a certain advantage perhaps of the early scripts was that it gave uh, gave a lot more time to 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 Henry yeah so at this point we can move relatively quickly here because we want to get to this kind of act three of the film here into the tower so long story short Pretorius knowing that. Henry's not on board has the monster kidnap Elizabeth in a kind of a quick scene. Very, again, kind of reminiscent of uh, Frankenstein 31 where May Clark is, you know, locked in the room and, you know, kind of pacing and the monster kind of appears behind her. Similar to this, a monster comes to a, um, you know, a glass door behind her, her table and, you know, basically whisks her away. And Henry, again, knowing that he's beaten, you know, one of his, his quotes decides, you know, agrees to work with Pretorius. And now we're into full-blown back at the watchtower, um, the making of this um, this woman, this, this bride of Frankenstein. And again, just some of the, the finest film making that I, I can remember. Again, one of the things I love about this film, and Jim, you can, you know, being the filmmaker yourself can, you know, touch on this, but the, I mean, the use of shadows and lights and set 
is, yeah. I mean, to me, never better than this. Well, I, I, I mean, my instinct is that look, like, like you know, inevitably, you have to get back to this point where you, you now you come full circuit to almost the beginning of, of Frankenstein, which if you watch these movies together, now we're like an hour and a half, two hours later, almost coming back full circle. Um, and a whale's going to direct the scene, and he's going to direct another creation scene that takes place in the same. They rebuilt the set or reassembled it at, at least almost perfectly the stairs at the bottom of the keep the keep itself the and the top and it with a few additions of like the kite you know uh thing at the top and stuff and um and everything um and so you know whales thinking like i gotta i'm gonna do this whole scene again over again so this time maybe he's got a little more money maybe he's got a little more he's definitely got more uh uh autonomy you know uh, from the studio to do do this the way he wants to and he's got this is his second chance so he's gonna overdo it so he you know the the amount of things sparking and moving and stuff is, 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 you know, twice what it was in the first film. He's got a crane in there so he can move the camera through all this stuff like that. Um, and he's, and he's going to push the boundaries of, again, I talk about, you know, classic filmmaking, you, you shoot your close-ups with a, with a longer lens. So you'll, you'll shoot wide shots with a 24 millimeter lens or a 12 or whatever. And then you go into a 50 and 55 or something like that. And then these close-ups you do with like 85 and it creates that nice blurry effect behind the, the actors and, and, and it, you, what you don't get is this fisheye bowed uh, appearance to the faces, which doesn't make people look good. That's just not, if you hold your iPhone right up to your face and take a photo of it, a selfie, and you look funny, that's that's why. It's, it's the lenses distorting the, the the shape of your face. But here we have all these amazing high-key shots of, of, of Ernest Essinger and Colin Clive, who are not young men, who are not, you know, they have their share of wrinkles and everything. And they're lit very starkly in a way that's not super it's not meant to be attractive it's supposed to be disturbing it's the way you would like the monster they're lit this is just sort of hitting me like they're kind of lit the way you like the monster and because they're i guess they're part and parcel you know in, involved in this whole uh process but it's just great livio mentioned the the the, the beating of the of the they, they've got a human heart um that's beating and 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 waxman uses that as the basis for um for the for the this rhythm that builds and builds and builds into this unbearable amount of time and, and climax, um, we do have and I'll pass this off here. We do have this moment where the first heart they have doesn't isn't beating very well, and Colin Clive's like, "We need a new heart," and he sent you know it's like they're sending out for takeout, right? They, you know, uh, Pretorius sends Carl out out to do, and we actually have a scene where he he he's there waiting for some this pretty blonde girl to come walking by and and you know so he's gonna get it that and he goes back and it's like it was very fresh and, and even henry frank saying in the midst of his meeting is like oh wait hang on a second <laughs> one think- of my my favorites uh is when they're they're discussing you know i, I need a new heart and, and he's like okay Victoria says, you know, I want you to go to your friend at the accident hospital. And yes. you know, it's, it's, <laughs> accident it's very hospital. obvious, you know, what he's doing. But the uh, towards the end, after Carl uh, leaves and uh, Henry says that, you know, there's always accidental deaths occurring. The way that uh, Thessinger goes, you know, always and the way he kind of turns his head, it's it's back to your point from earlier, Jim. It's it's that twinkle, of, you know, that Charles Lawton. Twinkle yeah, yeah. that they can't censor is, is very, I love the delivery in that line. Yeah. But Henry's like, Henry's convincing himself too. He's like, well, there's always accidents. Like he's, he knows what's going on. He's not that dumb. You know, he's, 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 uh, he's, he's allowing himself to be convinced that what they're doing isn't completely amoral. But ultimately we get, like what they're doing. He's, he's doing this against his will. He's, you know, you know stuff. So, I mean, ultimately Henry does, you know, he believes Elizabeth is dead. And, you know, of course he gets a phone call, um, you know, the, 
Pretoria sets up, you know, Kyle to run and they do a quick phone call. But um, Greg, I think one of the original or early version of the scripts was it was going to be Elizabeth's heart, right? Yes. And in fact, there's actually in the censorship file on the film, they, they have that about the fact that uh, Universal telephoned the censorship office and said, hey, what do you think of this idea? You know, that we, we use Elizabeth's heart. Uh, and um person at the censorship office wrote a report about it and said, uh, uh, you know, we told them we weren't really wild about the idea. And, uh, you know, frankly, the studio doesn't seem that sold on it either. They, they just, you know, wanted to kind of sound it off of us to see if it would, uh, you know, see if it would have any, if it, they thought it would have any impact. But um, no, they, uh, they they obviously didn't uh, decided not to go there, but it was definitely considered. It's in black and white in the, uh, in the censorship file that they, they did ponder possibly doing that using Elizabeth's heart, which would have been awful. You know, I mean, well, this would have, this could have been a very pessimistic movie and we're going to get there, you know, the, to the yeah. point where they were going to blow Henry Frankenstein up and, you know, we'll get to that. That probably would have been the same version script, right? We're almost at that era where they were planning to yeah. do that. Yeah, no, really, everyone's gone. But um... the Shakespearean thing, everyone dies at the end. All, all, <laughs> all, all the all the all the all everyone's dramatic arc is 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 done in, in a very neat way. Um, <laughs> the, the, like Romeo and Juliet. Everyone's the original dead. the original score reflects that too. Um, you know, at the, at the very very end, uh, of course, the music kind of goes wild as the tower explodes, right? And um, <clears throat> You know, it, it kind of ends with a big, you know, dun 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 dun, and, and then it just, you know, stops. But then, mm-hmm. of course, you see Henry and Elizabeth, and it plays the bride wedding theme over da, again. Da, da, yeah. Originally, that, uh, of course, that wasn't there, and so that was just the, that was the end of the music. I mean, it was like an unfinished, <laughs> you know, actually called, you know, the kind of unfinished coda. I mean, that was just how how it was. You know, we end on that big shrieking high note, and then. That was it. <laughs> that, would, that would be the Frankenstein versus the Wolfman ending style, where the the, the thing blows up and it, the credits roll. Right, the, you know, <laughs> yeah. typical Universal ending. Yeah, um, laboratory five. I, I like you know, uh, you know, talking about Colin Clive. Like, like you know, he, he he's interesting. He plays a lot of the movie. He plays Henry as this broken man. Like, like what 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 he's been through in the first film has destroyed not only his body but his self confidence and his esteem and stuff. And he's kind of a wreck of a thing and the only time i mean it it is interesting that he he comes back to life as it were during when he gets excited about you know doing this doing this experiment and bringing the bride like this is the one thing he has left that he's kind of like he he finds joy in kind of not even elizabeth he seems so resigned to everything even with elizabeth he seems detached and whatever but here he's so like hong kong's playing it like it's 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 like Henry Frankenstein has ants crawling all over him. There's this agitation thing happening that I think, again, Greg, like we talked about, like it's this, it's this somewhere between the actor and the character, this, this, this vibratory intensity that, that uh, Clive was able to to bring to, to his, his craft. Um, and it's, and again, and, and then the cinematography just highlights that with these crazy shots where he, he's starting to look like a, like a, like a madman here. I was going to yeah. say, Yes, yeah. Greg. I mean, how much of this is Clive a- Clive acting versus Clive, right? Yeah, it might be sixty forty. You know, uh, right. the acting and forty percent the actor, uh, maybe fifty fifty. Uh, but yeah, you're right. Those 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 close ups of him in the lab sequence are just you know they're just magnificent. Uh, and um, and it's right. It's like you know what he, you get the impression that what he lives for at this point is this obsession. You know yeah. that he he bungled it the first time, so to speak. Uh, he wants to make it right. It, it's it's all consuming. It's 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 you know it's it, it is it's it's he's got these 
these these things this is crawling on him that he wants to try to get this right. And um, when it, the opportunity finally comes up in that tower to get it right, then suddenly he's he's got this incredible surge of energy. He's like a lightning bolt. You know, he's he's mm. he's a whole different whole different being than he was what you see throughout the uh, the early part of the picture. Yeah. So yeah, Jim, that's a great point. I, and and I think that. Um, I think that it was a very good acting choice. Uh, of course, part of it wasn't the script, but it was a very good acting choice for, for Clive to pursue it that way. Uh, and then really, you know, really let loose uh, in those last uh, 15 minutes. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think he's lost himself at this point uh, a bit. He's forgotten about Elizabeth practically, um, and he's he's just into the moment, you know. Um, and he's made his deal with the devil. If, 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 if you know, if, if uh, Pretorius is this Mephistophelian character, then he's definitely uh, made, made his pact with that. And, and, and he's an, a willing accomplice at this point. No, he's not just a guy under duress, but yeah, amazing stuff. And and then we have the uh, creation scene here. Yeah. I mean, words really can't do this whole scene justice. I mean, if, I mean I'm assuming if you're listening to a Borgo pass, you're listening to our Bride of Frankenstein episode, you've probably seen the movie. Um, if you haven't, I mean, you, you've, you've got to, you owe it to yourself to see really confused. It is one, just wonderful. So yeah, we've got the, now the creation of the bride of Frankenstein, all her regal beauty and that, you know, the famous hair and, um, Greg, you, we, we owe it to you, sir, to, uh, to, to bring us here, introduce us to the bride of Frankenstein. Well, she is a magnificent creature and, uh, and, and she's all different things. She's, she's, uh, She's loony. Uh, she has this incredible. And I always think of the, in the Frankenstein series, if one one performance really kind of, you know, conjures up this kind of lunacy aspect to it, lunacy in a sense of being way out on the edge and being being you know acting at the at the nth degree kind of thing. Uh, I think she captures that in those last, you know, those last few minutes of the movie as the bride, uh, you know, the poses she strikes, the, 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 the scream, uh, everything that she throws into that, into that performance, you know, she's this in total incredible other being. And, and with all that, she's, you know, uh, you know, call me crazy, but she's, she's kind of sexy. You know, she's oh, yeah. got, she's got some real allure there working with her. We yeah. never call you crazy, Greg. Thank you. <laughs> You're among friends. <laughs> but uh, yeah, thank you. But she's, uh, you know, she is just this, this, this remarkable creation in, in every sense of the word. And, and of course, the, the, the incredible irony is that you see her and she's so otherworldly and she's so bizarre and she's so frightening and she's all these other things. And then, you know, she has the nerve to go up to the monster and scream in his face. I mean, it's like the ultimate irony of the movie. All right. I mean, she should be grateful that somebody is, <laughs> you know, to a certain extent that, uh, you know, that somebody wants her because of, despite her, you know, attributes, she's, she's a monster. All right. But instead she goes up to the monster and, and, you know, she looks at him and he looks at her and she screams in his face. She screams in his face twice. Uh, and, um, you know, there's this, this horrible rejection. You know, it, but, but a fascinating performance and, and just, you know, I think one of the great examples of what an actor, actress does, can do in a few minutes, right? Just yeah. a few I mean, minutes. She's clit. I mean, the word loon, lunacy or what she does, she seems like she's almost, oh God, I don't want to say brain damage, but you're right. Like the way she's acting, like you said, the poses and um yeah, and I mean, and she's immediately smitten with Henry. Yes, you know, she can't take her eyes off of Henry and kind of go, you know, walks towards him, and I mean, never even glances at Pretorius, and like I said, immediately rejects the monster. Which you know, but that's a that is a great description of uh, the bride, Greg. Yeah, I, I I think it. I just think it's interesting that we 
we call her the bride of Frankenstein when the one thing she does in her very short life is is reject this just uh, arranged marriage that that she's been born into, right? It's the one thing she refuses to be a bride um, up to the monster, uh, and and yet, but this is the the the, the name we give her. And stuff. But no, no, I think again, what she does with so little real estate is incredible. The 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 hiss <laughs> moment that I guess I guess that was a Lanchester. It was imitating these swans uh, that that were at a lake that she she remembered that would hiss at, at people, and so she pulls up that thing, and then the. The, Greg, do you have a thing on the the, the hair, the, the Nefertiri hairstyle? I, 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 I've heard that that's what it's based on, but I don't know anything about an evolution and how much. It seems like Elsa Lanchester had a certain amount of input into what she was going to look like over um, with Jack Pierce. And it seemed and maybe Jack Pierce wasn't didn't work with women as much as he did men. So this was a, a unique situation with him. Do you, do you have anything for us? I think it's probably a, it was a collaboration, I think, with with Lanchester and with Whale and with Pierce. Um, yeah. Pierce probably, you know, uh, and Pierce and Whale probably having the, uh, you know, the deciding votes. Uh, Elsa Lanchester was very funny about Jack Pierce. She said that, you know, he was he was very much like a god who believed he made, you know, these these creatures, these monsters that he had in his films. And she said, uh, you know, he was absolutely, you know, lord and master of his makeup domain. And when she would go in in the morning, uh, you know, she'd be she, she would never say good morning to him because he had to say good morning first. You know, I mean, it was it was the mm. his protocol, you know, that that he had to when he would say good morning, then you could say good morning. But in the meantime, you know, he was, um, uh, you know, he was completely in control. And so he would have been absolutely um, along with whale, absolutely the 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 the, the, uh, the mastermind behind the makeup. And she probably had some ideas about it. Uh, and of course, whale had known her back in the 20s and they had been chums, you know, back in, in the London theater. Mm. And, um, uh, you know. But but I, th- I think that and the, that whole Nefertiri hairdo and the silver streaks through it and all this I think they uh, you know it was all this 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 idea of this you know this incredible creature as as we all said born of a lightning storm um, and uh, yeah and that's what she kind of looks like she kind of looks like she's been almost like she's been zapped by lightning been electrocuted yeah in the hair and stuff like that yeah. I mean because she she I mean what you're saying earlier no but it is true I mean the the critical thing for the character is that she still has to be attractive. Yes. If if, yeah. if she comes out looking like a female equivalent of Boris Karloff's character, the, it doesn't work. No, not at all. I don't think no. she has to be alluring, not just to a monster, to to, to anybody. And 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 if she's going to be on the poster, obviously she's she's foremost on most of the the posters for the film that came out at the time. And so I mean, she was the big she's the big reveal, and we wait an hour and ten minutes to to get to her, and and again only get to spend a little bit of time with her. So to craft that. Um, thing and also Lanchester wasn't a very tall woman right I mean I think I have her up on stuff yeah not at all she's I mentioned to her one time I said do they have you on stilts she said she said no I was definitely not on stilts but she said they you know they had various tricks they used to you know to to, to get me to look tall and, yeah. and so on and so forth but no stilts but but the gown's but, very long and she doesn't move much so I, I wouldn't be assuming she's on some apple boxes or at the very least she's on some heels I think she's five four yeah. from what I remember yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's about, that sounds about right. I, when, when we visited her uh, in, in, gee, it would have been oh, many years ago, uh, at her home in Hollywood where she had lived at, lived with uh, Charles Lawton, who had died some years before that. Was that the one on the Pacific Palisades, Greg? No, this was actually right in Hollywood. I was surprised. Okay. It was, it was actually... I've been to the Palisades house, actually. I shot something there and the, oh, really? the present owner has it still decorated with all the posters from them. And it's got the, the safe that uh, he used as a bar and everything. It's really cool. 
oh, that's cool. And you have a probably what a view of the ocean and all that kind of thing. Right? Yeah, right, right. I mean, you walk out the back porch and there's six feet and then it drops off to the ocean. It's incredible. Oh, that is cool. That is cool. No, she lived in a in a uh, right right in Hollywood up on Curson Avenue. And um, it was, you know, actually almost right in the middle of town. I was surprised because, you know, most celebrities, of course, don't live right in right in the actual Hollywood area. But she but she did. And um, I, I remember when we went to see her that, you know, she first heard her coming down the stairs and she talked to her to her secretary with her for a few moments. Then she walked in the room and uh, I thought the same thing. I thought, my, she's so tiny. You know, I thought it was it was expecting because I naturally was expecting this, you know, towering creature with towering hair and <laughs> the hair obviously adds some, right? Um. <laughs> yeah. But uh but yeah, she um she was fun. And of course she was such a she was such an eccentric lady in her day. I mean, uh, yeah. you know, uh, uh you know, final scurrilous story of the night, and that was that uh, I know that they, they used to joke about the fact that when she was on the set of the Bride of Frankenstein, that she would uh, you know, between takes, she would uh, reach down and yank up her uh her shroud, you know, that she wore up over her hips and flash everybody. Uh, and all just, you know, because, you know, as you know, how long it takes to shoot a film, everybody's sitting around and they're starting to get a little antsy and everything. And she would say, surprise, you know, and then she would do that. And everybody got to see uh, what they got to see. So, uh, so yeah, so she was quite a, uh, quite, <laughs> quite a character in her day. And she was still quite a character when we, when we met her, when we met her, she taught me how to hiss, you know, like she did. Oh. in the movies. So, so yeah, she was, very, very, yeah, very cool. Have, very, have very you cool. used it since then, Greg? <laughs> Whenever possible, at least two or three times a day. <laughs> Telemarketers, or yeah. Telemarketers. I would ask, I would ask you to hiss, Greg, but I, I want to have you back on here at some point, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> so we are. So now we've got a, a a monster who's been rejected. So Livio, you want to take us here from uh, the lever, the lever, <laughs> the the infamous lever. So. You know, I, I was actually talking with with Jim about this earlier today. I, the uh, it, it's I I get the device of why it's there, but it's just so unexplained, and it's just this massive self destruct switch that 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 is there. I, I told Jim, I said it it reminds me of like the '60s uh, Batman show where everything was just ludicrous, but had a label on it, like it. You should right. have a little label hanging, you know, the blow you blow us all to atoms, yeah. you know, which, um, but yeah, I mean, who you know. puts, who puts a lever that blows up the whole place in their laboratory. That's so irresponsible. Yeah. I mean, if a kid came in there or something, right. It's just, exactly. Yeah. 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 But no, it the, is, I, I happened to pause it the other night and it is, it is definitely, I, I'm almost absolutely sure a, a, a unpainted baseball bat that, that has been whittled down. And the bracket it's in, you can actually see the raw wood and the pencil marks and stuff. So, was the, I mean, I mean, him, the, the monster pulling the lever and blowing it up wasn't a last minute addition to the script, was it, Greg? Because it looks like something that someone on the day, a carpenter had to be like, oh crap, here. No, they knew it was coming. They had, they had, they had warning. They should have had a super lever there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm looking at the scene now. I'm looking at the scene now, Jim. And actually, it says Louisville Slugger right at the end. So you're, you're <laughs> right. Funny, yeah, yeah. No, but it's actually got the hollow tip. It of does. A baseball bat. You can yeah, see right. it where where they hollow out the tip of a baseball. Uh, a you're 100 percent right. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> it's it's just, I mean, the, the, for a set that is this amazing and every detail is so beautiful, for that one key element to be raw, unpainted prop wood is is just it's it's fascinating. But again, you know, we we go back to this thing again and again where these these films weren't designed with the idea that people were going to be able to watch them over and over and over again and pick them apart and analyze them like we do. Um, they were more or less considered one-offs to to some degree. Um, until the whole revival thing started, right? When, when they showed Frank and Wolfman, I, 
and, and Dracula. And I feel like that was almost the start of this idea that, that there was a, an aftermarket for films that, you know, that led to home video that led to everything. But, uh, but anyway. Yeah. So the, the monster obviously is feeling dejected and he's, he's had enough, you know, he's, you know, he's back to the, as you said, the team, team death and um, <laughs> throws his hand up and, you know, just, just out of anger. And then that's when Pretoria says, you know, watch or Henry, excuse me, says, you know, be careful the lever. And Pretoria says, get away. Otherwise you'll blow us all to atoms. And, you know, Karloff knows what that means. And then, you know, obviously Elizabeth has, has escaped and she runs to the tower and the monster tells both her and Frankenstein to, you know, you live, you go. And then to Pretorius, you know, you stay, we belong dead. And then that's when you get that great hissing scene uh, from Elsa Lanchester. And and she does that just beautifully. And there's nothing but hate and disdain in her face. You know, just the expression outside of the hiss as she's doing that to the monster and, and, you know, he has kind of one last tear come down and, and he pulls the lever. And, you know, if you're, if you're watching this, you know, hit, hit the plate in slow motion or hit the pause button. And, and when they have the interior shots as everything is crumbling around them, and then you'll see Henry Frankenstein or rather Henry's st- uh, stand in uh, mm-hmm. there on the, the left side of your screen. Um, so you can, it, it's rare. You can see him die twice at the original Frankenstein when he's thrown off the uh, windmill. <laughs> and then when he's blown up and at the end of this one, even though, he, but he still manages to, uh, to survive both times, but yeah, that's the end. You know, the, he throws the switch. You, you see all the electrical equipment come on again and, and it's very loud and it looks like just planned ex- ex- charges that blow up the tower and it all comes crashing down. And, and that's the end of the movie. Yeah. No, Greg, it's no, it sounded like production was over. In you know, and the ending was going to be Clive's or Henry's death, and then they called Clive back right to to film that 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 scene where he's obviously escaping with Elizabeth. Yes, very late in the game, very very shortly before the film opened. Yeah, uh, they called back and did that, and and you know the, the, that that ending of the scene, if you again, if you interpret it from the point of view that Valerie Hobson is is uh, you know symbolically this angel uh, who who's their uh, guardian angel of, of uh, Henry Frankenstein. Um, you know, it, it kind of, it makes sense, uh, in the sense that he, you know, the, it, it, rather than having everything end as it originally did in all this doom and diabolical despair that it ends with, uh, you know, perhaps you could say his soul being saved. All right. He goes back to Elizabeth and the two of them stand there and watch this Armageddon and, and the destruction of the monsters and the destruction of Pretorius. And, and that, uh, you know, he's, he's back in, in, sacred company again and 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 has a chance to 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 make good um so i think that that uh you know it it was a it it it, it made sense from that point of view and uh and also it, it kept the film from being too much of a downer you know again as we were as we were saying you know a few minutes ago it's it, nobody really wants to see a show in which everybody you know everybody's dead at the end and everybody's blown up and it's like uh, you know it's like you know, wow, that, that that's a downer. You know, I mean, it's it's um, yeah. my my years ago to going to see the movie Sweeney Todd, and uh, <laughs> the, the film place was packed because everybody was a Johnny Depp fan, and it came to the end. And, you know, most of the cast is dead, and 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 uh, Johnny Depp was you know was bleeding to death in the end last scene, and the movie ended, and um, the lights came up, and nobody in the audience moved, nobody said anything. And then finally, this one girl sitting next to another one said to her, great choice for a movie. And, <laughs> <Come on. laughs> 
everybody's dead. And, you know, and then everybody in the audience left. But, uh, you know, they might have had the same thing with Bride. I mean, when it ended, everybody, somebody might have said, boy, a great choice for a movie. The whole cast is dead. Boy, what, what you know, this is horrible. So, um, so yeah, it had a little bit, a little bit uplift ending there. And, uh, and you kind of wonder where, where Henry and Elizabeth went from there and what they did. And, and, um, they had a couple kids. Uh-huh. That's right. <laughs> Wolf and Ludwig and a daughter and, and, or two, right? And possibly Fanny. <laughs> Talk about Aunt Fanny. In, uh, That's right. In, in Son of Frankenstein. War, yeah. 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 So they, uh, yeah. So all kinds of, uh, all kinds of possibilities, but, um, yeah. but yeah, yeah, it's fun stuff. This has been so fun. Really, really fun. Oh, I mean, how does this one stack up, Greg? I mean, you mentioned earlier on, this is one of the last, Universal films that you saw as a, you know, as a youth, I mean, fast forward, however many years later, how does this one stack up in the the pantheon of, you know, Universal for you personally? Well, I think it's, I think it's their greatest horror film. I think, uh, you know, we, we, we might like other ones for other reasons. But uh, the, this one, for all the reasons that uh, all three of you have, have spoken about so eloquently tonight, there, it has so much going for it, so much artistry, uh, so much uh, interpretations, so much depth, uh, so much brilliance. And I think that one of the interesting things about the film uh, that I always take away from it is that there seems to be a little bit of a tug of war, though, going on in the movie thematically, uh, which is that you have James Whale directing the film uh, very slickly, very brilliantly, very perversely, subversively, if you will, um, and uh, kind of creating this, this bizarre world. And then you have Karloff playing it. And it would have been very easy with what Whale wanted Karloff to do for Karloff to look foolish and to look silly and to look like, you know, he was sort of being victimized by the director who was making him do things that, you know, kind of turned the film into a comedy and kind of showed how powerful a director can be with his material. And I think there's a little bit of one-upmanship there because I think Karloff kind of turns it back on him. Uh, I think Karloff is so, uh, the word that comes to mind is beautiful in the picture. Uh, he has such sensitivity and such power and and, and causes you to feel so, such sympathy and everything that the movie becomes very profound. So it's a, it's an interesting mixture of a profound performance against kind of an almost satirical, at times almost Monty Python uh, kind of background. <laughs> and the profound nature of it wins out. All right. It, it, it manages to win out. It never gets capsized by the by the camp in the film. The camp in the film works beautifully. But one of the reasons the camp in the film works beautifully is because of the fact that Karloff keeps it in check with his own performance that, that he's able to do yes. all this work. So you, you get you get all kinds of different different approaches to filmmaking in it and all kinds of, you know, uh, different different personalities bringing what they've got to the movie and just letting it explode on the screen. And um, so it becomes an extremely moving, extremely powerful, uh, just a brilliant film to watch. And um, I think it's the best thing that Universal ever did in the fantasy field. I, I agree. That, that's, that's, that's a great point, too. You know, I know Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein gets a lot of credit for a lot of people will call it kind of the first, you know, quote unquote horror comedy. But you, you look at this film and, and it's not it's not outright. Obviously, it's not right an outright comedy picture, but there are outright comedy bits, you know, with Una O'Connor and sure. Clive and, and things like that. And, and to your point, they, they found a way to still make it so moving and so poignant, so scary and also funny, you know, at the same, all, all these things, like you said, all, all at once, but managed to just fit together perfectly. So that, that's a great so would you, way. Would you, 
So, Olivia, would you call this your favorite non-Lon Chaney Jr. film? <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, that's a good question. I, it, actually, I, I think my favorite um, in terms of uh, universal horror films that, that, that don't star uh, uh, Chaney, who I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan and proponent, defender of, apologist for, too, uh, is would probably be the black cat. I, I don't, I don't know if there's a, a better horror horror picture that universal made than, than the black cat. But uh, this one is a very, very, very close second for me. And Jim, I know your love for black cat. So I'm sure you're, you're right there too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I can't say anything better than, than the way Greg put it about the, the tug of war and, and how, um, you know, whale whale was trying to undermine in a lot of ways, what he did with Frankenstein and play against it. And Karloff leaned further into it and, and hence that thing. And I do think that the tension between those two creative entities is what gives the, the film its, its spark, so to speak. Um, I, I, I'd agree too. Like, I, I, I think this is probably Universal's classic Universal Horror's best film. It, it's not my favorite film. Um, I tend to like, I, I like obviously Black Cat and, 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 and everything, but I also tend to like some of the creakier ones too, because I like being able to see this one's so fluidly, perfectly, flawlessly assembled. I tend to sometimes like to see the the nuts and bolts again, to use a, a, a phrase, um, which makes me love the first Dracula and, and which makes me love Murders in the Rue Morgue and, and, and films like that. I like to see the 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 uh, some of the the rough edges a little bit to see this um to see universal creating not just a genre not just a film genre but create like a, a filmmaking process the way they 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 did all again most of all these films in a studio in in los and in sunny los angeles that they created this gothic microcosm inside a completely inappropriate environment for it they so they had to manufacture every single thing as opposed to hammer where they could just go to a, a real castle um but yeah having said that i think there are some scenes in this film like the creation scene like the hermit scene that that are stand out as as well as as any horror has ever been done not just universal all the way up to 2021 uh and and overall just finally it's it's that it's the universal constantly could make you feel sympathy for 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 monsters um and and no other studio consistently was was able to to do that um, the, the monsters in universal movies are sometimes the most human characters and it's just, it's, it's part of their formula. And then it's part of why we're still talking about them just as long ago, as long afterwards. Yeah, anyway, absolutely. so great guys. Wonderfully said, Greg, I know we had mentioned, I'm going to let you go here shortly, but of course, let us know what you're working on. Let the listeners know. We had mentioned, um, you know, we had our episode with you not too long ago. Um, the one man crazy, the life and death of Colin Clive, a book you put out, Shortly, and you know, cannot recommend that book enough for any you know Frankenstein fans, Colin Clive fans, early Hollywood fans. It's just such a, a great read. But what else can you tell us and the listeners what you're working on now? What we can look forward to in the next you know few months? Well, thanks for asking. The um, uh, I have a book that I'm hoping is going to be coming out very shortly called um, Angels and Ministers of Grace, which is thirteen uh, thirteen chapters on different uh, horror film topics. Um, so, uh, you know, with everything else today with the, uh, with the COVID situation, publishing has slowed down. So uh, things are not moving uh, quite as quickly as I would like them to, but uh, I still have to index the book. They have to send me the, you know, the pages index. So, but hopefully that will be coming very shortly. And if that's the case, then it should be out by the end of the year. And that's again called Angels and Ministers of Grace. And I am just about 
uh, I'm maybe about a week away from finally submitting the novel I mentioned last time, I believe, and that is a book called Frankenstein's Witch, St. Lizzie, Pray for Us. And it is a Hollywood novel, and um, part of it takes place in 1967, uh, and uh, also another part of it takes place in 1931. So um, you can, you know, everybody can pretty well surmise what... uh, (laughs) <laughs> where, where the book is going and what it's going to be touching upon and and so on and so forth. And uh, it was a great fun to write. And I was able to take a lot of um, a lot of research that I've done over, you know, the decades and kind of add a fictional layer into it, not changing any of the facts sort of things that happened, but adding fictional characters within the, you know, within the, within the uh, story itself, within the actual factual background uh, and coming up with with a uh, with a horror story uh, that takes place a mystery actually it takes place uh, so so it was uh, it 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 was great fun to do and um, uh, uh, one of the reasons it's taking so much time is that I don't want to stop writing it um, <laughs> I don't know if you've had experiences when you've had work projects of certain kinds but uh, you get on certain things and you and you get to the point and you think oh gee I don't want I don't want this one to end I want to keep working on this one or if I sit down tomorrow and read this chapter again I think I could actually make this you know uh, more effective if I did this that or the other thing and so um, um, having a little bit of completion anxiety with that but actually I like I say I think one week from today I think it actually is going to go in and um, and then I'll have I'll have a breakdown and go from there that's wonderful well we'll certainly be in touch Greg and if you want to come back on and you know promote it, you know, audio, or we'll certainly, you know, we'll, we'll drive folks here, you know, gregmack.com, gregorymack.com and um, Amazon. So definitely we'll stay in touch. We'd love to love to help get the word out on that. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. And I must say uh, to, to Jim and Livio and to you, Scott, that all three of you were, were terrific tonight. You gave me a lot of new insights and, and um, you know, I've been watching this film uh, for decades, and <laughs> you gave me a lot of new things to think about, a lot of new insights that, that you shared. Um, and uh, you all obviously, you know, uh, love the movie, and uh, you know, have had a lot of really great uh, perceptions uh, that I enjoyed hearing tonight. So thank you very much. That's wonderful. And we do before we leave here, we do have another author amongst us here on the show. Jim, take it away, bud. Oh, that's right. So, well, first of all, I just want to say, I, uh, I, Greg, I can't wait, wait to read both of your books when they come out there. Thank um, you. I'm, I'm so, and I can't wait to see you make that jump into, into fiction, historical fiction. I think it's going to be great. Thank um, you. Let's see. So today's October 31st. In two days, uh, my first fiction novella is going to be available on Amazon and elsewhere. Uh, it's called Bloodsucker City. Uh, it takes place in 1933, actually. Um, oh. It was almost going to be 31, but my mom was born in 33, so I decided to put it in 33. So right during the Depression. Um, and it's a, about a, a woman who's falsely accused of killing her own child and sent to a maximum security women's prison where all the wardens are vampires who slowly feed off the uh, the inmates. And she has to figure out how to not only uh, escape, but to bring down this uh, this whole castle of evil that she finds herself trapped in. So this is my first. Uh, uh, I have a nonfiction book out there called American Cryptic, and it's available everywhere. Um, and it's about uh, boogeymen and uh, ghost stories that are endemic towards uh, like Pennsylvania, where I'm from. Uh, but American, but uh, Bloodsucker City is my first uh, full length novel. So I'm excited uh, for that to come out. Well, congratulations. It sounds super. I'll yeah, congratulations. Yeah, that's awesome. Expect, expect it, Greg, expect a copy in the, in the mail at some point. Uh, Thank you. I'll, I'll get it out to you for sure. And I'll make sure you guys get a copy of mine. I, I'd be very happy to do that. 
See how well that works. That's great. Olivia and I are going to have a lot to that. Olivia and I are going to have a lot to be reading this winter, so I can't wait. Oh, I mean, I, I'll tell you, um, I, I'm I, I was unaware about your your uh, your novel you're working on, Greg, but I was I've been very aware of of the first book you mentioned of the uh, Angels and Ministers of Grace. I've actually emailed them a few times because um, I, I believe it's a sequel to uh, the Very Witching Time of Night, which has quickly become one of my favorite uh, books on this subject ever. And so I can you. I cannot wait um, for for the follow up there and, and cannot just cannot recommend uh, you know your, your your books enough. A, a, a lot of times you know when you're reading about just straight history and facts, it can it can really seem monotonous or or even boring. You know if you if there's no emotion behind it, it's not lively. And if you read any any of Greg's work, it's it's like you're having a conversation, just like what we're doing now. I mean the the pages turn so quickly. And, you know, you can read a, a 500 page book in, in absolutely no time and, and just never be bored. You're, you know, like, like <clears throat> you're very good because you always leave the reader wanting more. So that's I'm very excited about your works coming. Livio, up. he already said you sent him a book. He already said you're sending you a book. He'll yeah, well, I autograph. Had, okay. You know, All right. right. <laughs> He's looking for the back catalog. <laughs> yeah, I'm, just, I'm just happy he dropped the restraining order a couple years back. So, yeah. <laughs> Well, I thank you all for all the very nice comments. And I'll just I'll just mention here, you can always keep up with me at my website, which is www.gregorymank.com. So just drop in anytime and I'll be very happy to hear from you. Wonderful. Well, thank you again so, so much, Greg and Livio and Jim. Always a pleasure, gentlemen. Such a great time here. And um, all right. Time, yes. well, thank you guys so much for joining. Thanks, and um, happy traveling on the Bogo Pass Horror Podcast. We'll talk soon. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode, but the fun does not stop here. You can follow and interact with the show's hosts and listeners online on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The Borgo Pass Horror Podcast is a presentation of Shadow Camera Film and Entertainment. This episode was edited by Livio Marino. The music was composed by Sean Poole. Opening and closing narration are by me, Kat Herons. Show titles and graphics created by Jim Towns. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Borgo Pass Horror Podcast. Podcast.